Hi, and welcome to episode 162 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. I am Dr. Laurent Bannock, and today I had my good colleague at the IOPN, our Director of Science and Research, Professor Kevin Tipton, for one of our sort of double act. Uh, I like to think it's a double act. It's more about Kevin than me, of course. But in today's session, we talked about protein. Of course, we did. And this time we talked about protein and weight loss and particularly the role that protein can play as a nutritional strategy to support quality weight loss. And what do we mean by quality weight loss? Well, of course, we're not just talking about something as basic as weight loss, but body composition being the primary focus of the weight loss. And that's what I meant by quality, preserving lean muscle mass, preferably gaining fat mass, and where relevant, no significant changes to hydration. So what did we get into today? Well, we talked about how consuming a higher protein diet during weight loss helps to preserve lean mass across a range of stakeholders. In particular, what we're interested in here is exercisers and elite athletes. So there's a spectrum right there for you, which does actually require a different perspective, a different focus. There are different considerations beyond just calories when it comes to a weight loss, uh, an energy restriction, uh, inducing a calorie deficit. And that's where protein can come in, as you'll hear us discuss today. But we don't want to embark on a weight loss journey that effectively makes an athlete less functional, i.e. less good at being an optimum performing athlete. So we got into that in great detail. So you can expect this conversation to be considerably more than just about energy balance and whacking in a bunch of protein. We talk about the evidence, we talk about context, it is a very nuanced area, and we get into the whole shebang on that topic. So yes, we're going to talk about the amount of protein and how that might vary based on training volume and how big the actual caloric deficit is. We're going to explain why 2 to 2.4 grams per kilogram per day is a good target for protein intake uh, across the spectrum of people that this will be of interest to and why we don't just want to eat protein or just talk about calories. You'll have heard me talk before about the importance of a food first approach because we eat food, not just calories or protein. So we talk about protein quality, a nutrient dense diet and so on. But ultimately, we are going to remind you that the evidence still points to the overriding primary consideration in this being that the stimulus to retain lean mass, the strongest stimulus is going to be via resistive exercise. So we talk about the importance of resistance exercise as part of this, this approach to quality weight loss. And of course, particularly how protein plays a really powerful role in that. So before we get into the discussion today, just do check out our website at www.theiopn.com where you can access not only this podcast, but all the uh, relevant podcasts that we will connect to in our discussion. There are many related conversations I've had with Kevin or with other experts. You can get the transcript to this episode, and also you can learn about our advanced level, postgraduate level diploma in performance nutrition, a practice focus program, something that will take you from your existing knowledge and education, which might well be a, a degree or a master's degree or even a PhD in sport and exercise science, sports nutrition, performance nutrition, dietetics, what have you, and specifically on how to, to think and act and practice in the real world as an effective performance nutritionist. That's what we're all about. So check out our Diploma in Performance Nutrition at www.theiopn.com and where you can learn about us, our team. We are more than just me and Kev. We are a whole team of academics, researchers, and practitioners. And together we are the IOPN. So anyway, without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation today about protein and quality weight loss. Take care, folks. And uh, oh, I almost forgot. This will be the last podcast I am able to produce for about six weeks. 
For those of you that are catching up months or years after, this won't make any difference to you, but there will be a reasonable gap, I'm afraid, between now and the next series of podcasts, which I've already lined up because I'm off to do my other job, of course, which is being a nutritionist, in this case, with the Belgian national football team. Very, very exciting time for me. And I, uh, when I get back, I'll uh, hopefully have an opportunity to reflect upon those experiences with you. So anyway, enough of that. Have fun with this podcast. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Enjoy. Hi, welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. I am Lauren Bannock, and I'm back with our Director of Science and Research, Professor Kevin Tipton. Hey, Kev, how are you doing? Yeah, fine. Thanks, Laurent. Great to be here. Great to get another pod. Going. Yeah, well, we've got to squeeze one in because in a couple of days, I'm flying out to Belgium to join the Belgium national men's football team for a crazy five week, hopefully five weeks of championship football at the Euros. So listen, this topic that we're going to get into today is going to be about protein recommendations for weight loss, primarily in recreational athletes, exercisers, if you like, and elite athletes. And it is, you know, it is a the word weight loss is sort of one of those terms that I think personally it drives me nuts because it's there's not enough context there. You know, what does weight loss even even mean? So of course, what we're going to be talking about principally is body composition and performance across that spectrum of people. But Kev, just let's just dial back to why this topic is important for you know people to continue to be conducting original research, writing you know, consensus statements and for us, for example, to have this conversation today, because some people might feel, ah, you know, weight loss is just a simple case of, you know, calories in, calories out, put your athlete, put your player into an energy deficit and boom, you're going to lose weight. So from your perspective, Kev, why is it not that simple? And why do we need to expand upon that in today's discussion? Yeah, I think you can go from the continuum of sort of sedentary people who are overweight or obese and need to lose weight for health all the way through to elite athletes who might want to lose weight for various and sundry reasons, like making weight class or for aesthetic purposes, if they're uh, in particular sports like gymnastics or dance, et cetera. So you got lots of different reasons for people wanting to lose weight. And it's obviously a very popular topic. Just every day, you're going to see something about somebody talking about weight loss. Now, I've always tried to maintain that from a health perspective for overweight and obese individuals that weight loss is the wrong concept, that it should be looking at changes in body composition, and that may include losing weight. But when you lose weight, when most people lose weight, they're going to lose a combination of fat and lean body mass. And there are various reasons why losing lean body mass is not a positive and in very rare circumstances, it could be something you don't worry about or, or might even want. But for health reasons and for most athletes and exercisers, you don't want to lose much, if any, lean body mass. And so what we're going to try to talk about today are nutritional interventions and ways to minimize that loss of lean body mass when you're losing, when you want to get your total body mass down. Absolutely. And, you know, it is almost forgivable, I guess, for people to have a sort of an oversimplified perspective of of what weight loss is and how we approach it. Because of course, the sort of the messaging that we get on that is very much from a public health perspective in general population who are not, face it, active, not active at all. So we are talking about a much more specific portion of the general population. And yes, you know, a fair number of people do exercise. They do go to the gym maybe two, three times a week. Some people take it further than that who, you know, might be, you know, real serious weekend warriors or, uh, well, now during all these lockdowns, they're uh, not just at weekends, but they, they might go out for a two, three hour bike ride. They might hit the gym, you know, more often than normal for more of a health and or, or an aesthetic purpose, just to look great with your, your shirt off sort of thing. But of course, at the other end, of that spectrum is the elite athlete. And of course, there's many different types of elite athletes from elite endurance athletes, ultra endurance athletes to strength and power athletes, intermittent sport athletes like soccer, football, of course, rugby, 
and so on. And there's just slightly different angles there. But when it comes to the athlete, of course, you know, they need to be functional and they need to be able to function at their absolute best. And the way the human body functions is a combination of things. It's not just strength and power or power to velocity or power to weight ratios, you know, which way you want to look at this stuff. They've got to make decisions. They've got skills that they need to perform at their best, so on and so forth. So it gets pretty complicated when you start cutting their fuel supplies because it's not just calories that you cut. You cut some of these essential things that they need to perform at their best. But there's a lot to this area, Kev. And uh, what I want to do is kind of sort of control the direction just slightly. So I guess one of the first things that we hear about is calories, calories in, calories out. Maybe we could just focus on that just first as to what does that even mean? And, and why is that an oversimplification, particularly for exercisers and athletes? Yeah. When you say you want to control the direction of this, you do know who you're talking to, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I want the illusion of controlling the direction, Kev. (laughs) People tell me that trying to keep me online is like herding cats, you know, so good luck. Yeah, so of course, when people talk about calories in, calories out, you know, if you want, you can get all sorts of avenues down conversations with that big arguments about whether it's real or not and everything. And it's a model and all that's true to some extent, but I think what the confusion is to me is at the end of the day, you know, physics is physics, calories in and calories out. When you talk about energy, a calorie is a unit of energy. And at the end of the day, that's absolutely true. But what people don't think about is when they think calories in, calories out, what they think about is the number of calories that are on a box of cereal or, or a pot of yogurt, and that's how much they eat. And then how many calories they expend based on their iWatch or their Fitbit or heart rate or whatever it is that they do. And then sometimes it doesn't add up. And that's because there are lots of metabolic changes going on in the response to the nutrition and to the stimulus of the exercise and all this kind of thing. And so those manipulate or the amount of energy that's expended and stored, et cetera, all has to come into account when you ultimately get to that ultimate point of calories in, calories out. And I think that's where the real confusion is, is that it ultimately is physics, energy in and energy out, but that's not the way we perceive it or in real life how it works. I hope that made some sense. No, of course it does, because, you know, the theory is, of course, bang on. It's just the reality is more nuanced because of the situation that involves a human being that is not, you know, there are so many different aspects to this all the way from like you said you know the different foods and the way in which the body interacts with that and digestion absorption and you know the thermic effect of feeding and all this stuff and then you know but also you know the drivers that influence the person to eat less or to eat more is not so simple but also the illusion that we're able to somehow calculate a person specific calorie needs based on some, you know, calculations we get from a book or from a spreadsheet, you know, the difference between that and what we might measure in, in a lab using, you know, RMR testing, for example, is one thing or whether it's a 24 hour chamber study as well is, is completely different. So we need to be mindful that these numbers, because the numbers sound specific, don't they, Kev? I know we're going to get into this with protein and we'll get to, you know, recommendations for how much protein we should be getting but it sounds very specific when you say for example 2 to 2.4 grams you know per day or this person needs to eat three and a half thousand calories a day this is what i've worked out or or maybe with athletes for example we might use gps data for example to assess you know how much these guys are running around and the distance they cover and then we put that through some formulas and work it out but there's a big difference between the theory and actual reality maybe we just briefly you could maybe discuss that and why it's important that we bear that in mind when we're reading the literature, we're looking at the science and, you know, what happened in the lab is what happened in the lab. And we've got to be careful with how we translate this stuff. Yeah. It occurs to me that I'm liable to get death threats now for saying that calories (laughs) in and calories out is actually real. And that is the difference is trying to measure these things and trying to get exactly the right amount in gives the illusion that, you know, that this energy in energy out is not, real, but it's all these 
are ways to manipulate that. And the metabolism is real and unmeasurable in many ways. And that's, you know, when you're storing glycogen, that's energy being stored. That's so you brought that energy in, but it's not going out anywhere. Right. So there are all these various factors. It's so complex. I saw on Twitter not long ago, I can't remember who, I think it might've been Sam Marcora put it up and it was just really complex. And, you know, it was, here's your energy balance equation for, you know, for people. And I was like, yeah, that's about right. It's, there's just so arrows and word salad and all that kind of stuff. And I think we try to oversimplify it, which is, I understand why it's necessary because when you're speaking to people and whether athletes or, you know, somebody wanting to lose weight or somebody in the gym, you often, you want to try to simplify it. So it makes it more approachable. You're more approachable for them to come and try to get some help. And if you start trying to get too complex, they're going to, you know, get glassy eyed. In fact, yesterday I was walking in the sun yesterday, crossing a bridge over the river and stopped to talk to these two women who were out and, you know, because of my accent, you know, in the Northeast, I don't sound like a Geordie or anybody from County Durham, right? So people always ask me why I'm here. And she, oh, and of course, as soon as you say nutrition, they want me to design their diet for them. And basically, I was like, look, just eat less, you know? And, and of course, they don't want to hear that, but you got to simplify it down because there are so many variables that if you start trying to get into all of them, you're going to, your head's going to explode. Yeah. And that's real. But when we, as scientists, when we talk about it, we have to think about all those various components to what's really happening to as to whether you gain or lose total mass or fat mass or lean mass. And that's sort of what we want to try to touch on a little bit today. And, and when I say that, I mean that we're only going to scratch the surface, really. That's why I think protein in particular is a great one, because that is something that is a little bit easier for us to understand and apply some you know, some good evidence-based strategies that relate to protein's role in this whole thing, which we'll get into in a minute. Because, of course, as you said, caloric, the whole caloric thing is deeply complicated. You know, carbohydrate needs, particularly for athletes, is, is pretty complicated too. But the fact is, for one reason or another, people want to lose weight. They even need to lose weight from a health perspective, which is going to be less our approach today. But what they do want from a body composition perspective, is to lose from the right components of their body composition, i.e. body fat, preferably. And they want to maintain, if not gain, their lean components, their muscle mass specifically. Mm -hmm. So even if you, you do initially at least undershoot the calorie intake and or say the carbohydrate intake, as it relates to this body composition, maybe not performance, maybe not how you feel, but specifically from a body composition perspective, which is going to be our prime focus here, protein is that sort of tool, that main tool that we're going to use. So like you said, we can only scratch the surface on this, but I guess probably one of the first angles I think we should get into is if we're, we're going to agree, we're talking about weight loss, somebody for one reason or other is in a caloric deficit, a caloric restriction, a process of caloric restriction, which you know, is another conversation, I guess. But in this situation, specifically, whether that person's an exerciser or an elite athlete, they still need to have a, some sort of understanding, well, how much protein? How much protein should I even be consuming? And why is that necessary? And not just, you know, throw out the protein with the bath water, so to speak. Well, I think if we start from the standpoint of we want to maintain or gain lean body mass during losing total mass for various reasons that we've sort of touched on, then protein is going to be nutritionally protein is probably the most important component of this diet. And that stems from the metabolic changes that happen during a calorie deficit. And like I said, if you over the years, it's been very apparent that if someone loses weight, loses total body mass, that a good portion of that is going to be lean body mass. And the, the proportion of lean versus fat mass that's lost can be manipulated based on diet. The, the ultimate standpoint of it tends to be what's the, the ratio of lean mass to fat mass that you start with. So if you start with a great deal of fat mass, and not as much lean mass, then you tend to lose more fat mass. 
And then, so a very lean athlete is probably going to lose more lean mass initially if there's no other sort of manipulation to try to prevent that. But you can, in any situation, in any of those populations anyway, you can manipulate that based on protein intake. And that stems from the metabolic changes that happen during caloric deficit, which is you have a reduction in muscle protein synthesis. And you have it in sort of a two ways. One is the basal rate of muscle protein synthesis is decreased. And there are several studies that have shown that. Pasiakos was one of them and a few years ago. And Jose Areta, when he was in John Holly, working with John Holly and Stu Phillips showed this. And so you get a decrease in muscle protein synthesis, but you also get a this anabolic resistance that we've mentioned many times before that the response of protein or of the muscle protein synthesis, that system to the anabolic stimulation from ingested protein, from the amino acids, from ingested protein is reduced. And several have shown that as well. Amy Hector and Stu showed that very nicely. Probably one of the ones that I would think of first. So you get that sort of typical response to a stressful situation. You get this decrease in protein senses. You get a decrease in the response to protein. And so you end up losing muscle. And that is very common, and you see that very commonly. So that's where you want to have protein intake, because now you want to shift that curve to the right, where you're saying, hey, I'm going to need more protein to get this stimulation that I would have gotten from less protein in an energy balance, if if that makes sense. So, and we don't have a study like the one that Ollie did a few years ago, where you see a dose response of to protein in healthy individuals in energy balance and lifting weights and at rest. But we do have some indications that that shift that you do need more protein to, to get the same stimulation of muscle protein census. And we also know that that, and we'll get into resistance exercise, I'm sure later, but that's a big part of it as well to try to maintain muscle mass with during a energy deficit. So I think I've answered your yep. question for the so most part. I just want to hang around the, the importance of, you know, we're differentiating weight loss from the various compartments. And I just mentioned, I know the bulk of our listeners are highly educated in the area of things like body composition and metabolism and so on. But just from a practical perspective, why does it matter that we want to preserve lean mass? And and I don't mean that just from an aesthetic perspective. You know, why is this such an important area for us anyway? Well, I mean, so if we go again, touch a little bit on the various populations in an overweight obese population or in older people, you know, you don't want to lose muscle because muscle is an important metabolic organ. You have lots going on. Glucose uptake is greatest from muscle and lean body tissue. You know, again, I would argue that physical activity for those populations is incredibly important. So losing muscle is obviously going to hinder locomotion and ability to lift things. And then if you go to athletes or exercisers and athletes, then, you know, the more lean mass you lose, the more likely it is that you're going to lose muscle function, muscle strength, although it's not a one-to-one relationship as far as that goes. But, you know, there are some indications. And also, you know, just, again, metabolically, you want to maintain that tissue. So in order to avoid any possibilities of decreased performance or decreased activity, then you want to keep that muscle. Now, I would say that if we don't touch on it later, I do want to sort of bring up something I always try to remember, which is not every athlete that wants to lose weight is going to worry about losing muscle or should worry about losing muscle. For example, if you're, you know, I use an example of lightweight rowers and I do this because when I was in Birmingham, I had two lightweight rowers come to me and say, hey, we need to lose some weight because we got a, a race coming up and we need to get down And I said, okay, so what have you been doing? And they talked about their coach had been reading stuff. And this was back before we published our paper in 2010 with Sam Mettler. So we actually had the data, but hadn't published it yet. And so they had their coach had been getting them to eat lots of protein. And they said, yeah, I said, so let me ask you this. Did you lose weight fairly quickly and then sort of tapered off? And they said, yeah, that was pretty much how it went. And I said, did you get to a point where you were kind of tired out and your training suffered? And they said, yeah, I said, and that's, you were substituting protein, you're eating proteins instead of carbohydrates, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's what we were doing. I said, well, you probably, you know, your training was getting impaired because you're probably starting to get low on glycogen and you probably stopped losing weight because you've lost all the fat you can lose and you're probably not going to lose a whole lot more muscle because you're eating all that protein. So 
you get to a point where it can't. And so maybe it's better to lose an extra kilo of muscle and be slightly slower if that does happen, which is controversial, than sitting on the bank watching everybody else row because you're too heavy. So you can't even get, you can't compete. Or another example would be a, a climber, a cyclist who's a climber, you know, maybe they are losing some, especially upper body muscle isn't going to hurt them. In fact, they might like it better because, you know, it's not contributing anything to their performance. So you have to think of the situation, but for probably the majority of athletes that losing lean body mass, at least minimizing that loss is probably a worthy goal to maintain the power to mass ratio that might be important for them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think you made a very important point which is why we, we're always stressing the uh the need to think you know think first you know you can do whatever strategy but is that really what you want to do what are the impact and like you say with muscle you know more muscle may be uh surplus to to knee and of course muscle also is like you just mentioned with the glycogen situation because the glycogen is also holding on some water which in itself adds to to the weight and then you throw in uh, their supplementing with creatine, monohydrate, hopefully, and there's a bit more weight gain there too. So you're right. You know, do they even need to be doing these things? So all food for thought, no pun intended, of course. Let's just go back because, you know, we see recommendations that are made for protein in, say, exercises or general population just for weight loss, of course, sedentary, a lot of them. But protein recommendations, you've got the RDA, if we want to use that phrase. We've got elite athletes, we've got endurance, strength, and so on. That number is not a fixed number, is it? Or is it? You know, what, what is your view on what the current recommendations are since we're on the total amount of protein I, conversation? Uh, you know, you started with the RDA, which I suppose by definition, it is the recommended daily allowance. So recommended is in the title or... But I would argue that that amount of protein shouldn't be recommended for anybody. I mean, I think it's got to be more than that for almost everybody. And, you know, since this podcast isn't about the protein requirements and RDA, I won't get into the details, but 0.8 grams per kilo or something near that in most countries that have determined it. And that's on the very low side, I would say. And for sure, for anybody who's exercising, it's clear it needs to be higher than that. Generally, nowadays, the recommendations are coming in for most people who are interested in energy balance and weight maintenance and that, or maybe gaining a little muscle or something working out would be somewhere in the range of one and 1.6 grams protein per day per kilogram body mass. And so, and maybe up into the closer to two for some people. And of course, I know a lot of people want to eat more. So, but there's really no evidence that you need much more than two to 2.2 grams per kilo. There's just no evidence for that. Now, if you're interested in losing weight, but maintaining muscle, then probably higher protein intakes. The evidence suggests that higher protein intakes are important. And so we want to get up into the 2.2, 2.3, 2.4 grams per kilo range for people who want to lose weight. And we did a study, I alluded to it earlier, Sam Mettler study, where we fed 2.3, it turned out, grams per kilo and maintained muscle. Longland did a study with Stu our study was in weightlifters. So trained guys who went to the gym and they maintained during the weight loss period. And Stu did one with, and Jonathan Long, is it Jonathan Longland anyway? And they did not athletes, but put people on a training program and they trained and did resistance exercise and hit interval training. And both situations, we maintain muscle on average, on average, they actually gained a little bit of muscle. And that was probably due to the difference in the population. But it's very clear that, and you know, it's a perfect example of my mantra, which is be skeptical, but open-minded because before we did that study, when Sam Mettler study, when Nigel Mitchell came to me and said, Hey, I've got guys gaining muscle, but losing weight. And I was like, no, no way. You know, this is sort of 15, 16 years ago. I said, no, because that wasn't what people thought could happen. And so I said, well, let's do the study. And he managed to finagle some money because he he can talk, you know, people in anything. He's a great guy, Nigel. So we got some money. We did that study. And, and here came the results. And I went, well, I'm wrong. And we maintained, the guys maintained muscle in that study despite losing weight. 
and Stu studying the long and study, they also they gain muscle in that study a little bit. And there have been some others as well. Now, these are studies in males and we can get on to females later, which might be slightly different. Yeah, we will. We will. Just because, you know, I'm, I'm a nutritionist, so I'm involved with the day to day application of this stuff where I'm wanting them to eat food, not just protein. You know, they need more than just just that. And you know, that's why we use the term food first. And with athletes, we're we're trying to get into them in this context, not just enough protein to mitigate the issues with not just weight loss, but the loss of, of lean mass. And we've talked about why that's important, but, but also these athletes need to be eating fuel, for example, and other nutrients that help support their immune system and so on, particularly during these very acute phases of sort of like championship, like I'm about to go into with my players, soccer players, uh, same with rugby and you know, across many different types of sports and the impact of shoveling in, you know, more protein than is needed, the consequence of that actually could be that the satiating effect of that, the the sort of the filling them up might be at the detriment of them getting enough fuel in throughout the day, which is why I think it is important that we we look at that with a little bit more of a, like you say, a skeptical and open-minded mindset because you do hear kev a lot of people are talking about look eating enough protein is one perspective but actually there's no problem with with eating more protein more the better actually let's just throw some more in you know protein supplements let's just get it all in there you know because there's no perceived harm in healthy people for the most part do you have any further thoughts on that kev well i mean i think especially if you're in a, a situation where someone's trying to lose body mass You've got to drop the energy intake. And again, if we go with the population, the exercising and athlete population where increasing exercise energy expenditures, you're up at the top of that range where you can't really do that. So reducing energy intake and reducing energy intake is going to be part of it almost certainly anyway in any situation. Well, you have to decide what energy you're going to reduce. And in very many cases, you see people reducing carbohydrates, especially nowadays when carbohydrates is a curse word to many people. And so, you know, but that could end up being a, an issue of reducing carbohydrates too much because you're substituting protein for the carbohydrate in the diet. Now, that's aside from the satiety that you were talking about, which is if you eat too much protein or eat a lot of protein, then you might not feel as hungry all the time. And so you're eating less. And you could argue whether that's good or bad thing, depending on the situation. But but just substituting, you know, some macronutrients have to be substituted to get more protein in if that's what you want to do. So and you got to be careful about the carbohydrate, because, as you say, if an athlete is participating in high intensity training, whether that's in the gym or on the pitch or whatever, then carbohydrates are going to be the main fuel. And that's. I don't care what anybody says, that's very clear. And, you know, that's, I'm sure you've done podcasts on that, but it's, you can't just completely drop the carbohydrates. And and like in Sam's study, we were very cognizant of that. We maintained, we clamped the carbohydrate intake so that it didn't drop. It was the same percentage of calories anyway, in, in the two groups. And we did that because we didn't want there to be a difference and to have the group on a higher protein. And if they were on lower carbohydrates, maybe they were struggling to maintain their training. We wanted to maintain the training throughout. Now, other studies haven't done that. Other studies have substituted protein for the carbohydrate and left the fat intake up a little bit, and or maybe some a combination of the two, but still dropped carbohydrates. And there are problems with that. Like I say, A, you got to fuel the training if that's part of the deal. And that's, again, going to be variable depending on the particular situation of that particular athlete or exerciser. But also there are other reasons, too. And, and in fact, well, we'll get into it later. But uh, there's a big argument of that once you get to past about 40 percent energy deficit, that protein or any anabolic stimulus can no longer maintain muscle. And that's been advocated here recently in some review papers and stuff. And I can just say that. That could very well be true, but I don't believe that the solid evidence for that and carbohydrates might be part of the story of why that might be in those studies that have suggested it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, don't get me wrong. I there's all sorts of problems with overconsuming carbohydrates, particularly as it relates to you know causing problems with an individual's ability to lose quality weight loss, which is the whole body composition thing. But if you are very much thinking about working with athletes and for whatever reason they're they're trying to make weight or you're trying to prevent weight loss due to inactivity, et cetera, from a period of of injury, you know, those carbohydrates are relevant, not just because they're a source of fuel, but also those carbohydrates do influence the the metabolic machinery's ability to process that fuel when it is actually required. And we've got other issues like carbohydrate-rich foods comes from certain kinds of foods that the gut can have problems with if you don't interact with those foods, particularly fiber-rich foods, which is the whole train-the-gut concept. FODMAP diets uh, come into play to a certain extent. And then the microbiome, of course, are heavily influenced by fiber that comes from carbohydrate source foods primarily. But anyway, we're not talking about carbohydrates. It's just people love to throw the carbohydrates into the uh, the cage with the lions, like you said, Kev. So it is important we factor that in. So let's move forwards a bit with this protein conversation. And I'd like to just quickly differentiate our requirements for protein, depending on factors like training volume and, you know, the types of exercise, uh, as in resistance, strength, power versus maybe just endurance. The more elite athletes might be doing a combination of the two in their periodized training, but your recreational athletes tend to maybe focus on, on one or the other a bit more. And of course, there is the size of the energy deficit itself, which may also be of interest, which I know you have mentioned just a bit before. But the training volume and the types of training, what's the impact there? As far as how much protein? Yeah. Well, I don't know that the studies have been done to, you know, that I can say definitively based on data, you know, solid numbers for those. You know, again, the higher the training volume, the more... Well, I mean, the bigger the struggle is going to be to to maintain that training volume if you're if you're cutting calories. So there has to be some sort of balance there as to what you're trying to do. And if you're going to fuel that training, you're probably going to need carbohydrates to some extent. Now, again, you're going to cut carbohydrates for sure, but how much is really the question if you're trying to lose mass without losing lean body mass, without losing muscle. Different types of exercise again, the same thing, you know, the primary fuel for resistance exercise is carbohydrate. And if someone, you know, does an hour and a half worth of a heavy resistance exercise routine, there's going to be a significant amount of carbohydrate oxidized during that for fuel. Now, whether that's equivalent to a a hard interval session or not, probably no, but, and how much that, you know, there are various studies showing glycogen use, for example, with resistance exercise. And you get, you know, it depends on how those, the exercise is done, et cetera. It doesn't seem to be as much as endurance exercise, but that's higher intensity endurance exercise. So, but it's used, it is used and it's got to be replaced. So carbohydrate has to come from somewhere. And so there needs, I mean, I think what we keep coming back to is that in a weight loss situation, you got to be at least cognizant of the fuel that's going to be used if you're still exercising and or training if you're an elite athlete. And I think that that's an important factor that I think nowadays is probably much more at the higher level anyway, is much more people are much more aware of that. But maybe at sort of the exerciser level, the recreational people who are exercising for health or, you know, park run or something that maybe it's not quite so clear and got to be careful about those kind of that balance. And I suppose the opposite could be true where basically you just say, okay, I'm going to keep the carbohydrate. And this is what we did in Sam's study. We maintain the carbohydrate at least on a percentage basis and drop the fat. To we replaced the protein, the fat, we got rid of the fat to put in the protein. At the extreme, there is going to be a point where you're going to be too low on fat as well. And that is more difficult to do. And depending on how long in that study, it was only two weeks. So it really wasn't going to be an issue, but maybe in a, if you're trying to do this for months, then you might be into, of course, you wouldn't want to do a 40% calorie deficit for months. That'd be very, I think anybody trying that would be, uh, that'd be very difficult. But so anyway, 
you know, you have to take into account that when you're adding protein to the diet, especially if you're dropping energy intake, you're trying to get the protein higher than something's got to give. And you've got to decide where that line is as to how much it's carbohydrate and how much it's fat. And certainly the first thing you can do is get rid of alcohol if that's part of the equation at all. But if for sure, that'd be the first thing. But after that, you got to decide where carbohydrate and fat come in and you need to have enough carbohydrate to support what the training is that you're trying to do within the context of that. that I'm glad you mentioned period. that, Kev, because, you know, the obsession is with weight loss, it's the, the cutting the calories, the inducing the energy deficit, getting the right amount of protein. But what about exercise itself? You know, the role of the exercise stimulus and what about the types of exercise? What's more relevant for this situation anyway? Well, I think it's pretty clear that if you do want to maintain or gain lean mass, muscle mass during a energy restricted period, then you really want to do some sort of resistance exercise. I don't think that's arguable. And if you look at the studies and you try to put them all together, you know, I think that that's pretty clear. And in fact, I think that that explains at least some of the variability in that, what I mentioned earlier, which is where people are trying to argue that at a certain point past, say, 40% that you can no longer maintain muscle. I'm not convinced that that's true because the studies that in which that was tried probably didn't do as much resistance exercise as studies where it did work. So we have two variables going on there that's difficult to separate out, or three, really, if you count carbohydrates. So, But I think resistance exercise, especially if you're talking about people who are recreational athletes who or overweight individuals who are trying to lose weight, I would argue you want to get in the gym or, or at least do something where that's considered resistance exercise, whatever that is. It doesn't have to be in the gym, as we all know now. But resistance exercise is critical for maintaining muscle mass, and that stimulus is really important. That protein in and of itself is only going to go so far for maintaining that muscle. And I mean, as long ago as I think it was in the early 2000s, maybe late 90s, even Don Lehman did some studies with overweight women and he did it with and without exercise with higher protein and a very clear difference with the exercise. And so, yeah, absolutely. Resistance exercise is the main thing and protein is supporting that. Great. So I think that's pretty clear with regards to how much protein, but not at the expense of those other nutrients, particularly macronutrients, for reasons that we've thoroughly covered, I think. But what about things like timing of protein care? You know, is there any relevance there? If you get the right amount of total protein within a day, how important is the timing? And I guess that, again, may be something that needs to differentiate between somebody who's sedentary, a recreational and an elite athlete. But what are your views on that? And what's the evidence tell us? Yeah, I mean, I think there, you know, there is some evidence that timing is important, but the way that those studies were done sort of isolate that as you do in the lab. And so where that comes in in a, in a real situation is not clear. I think that if you're in an energy balance situation, that the timing is probably not that important that it's much more important to get that 1.6 to 1.8 1 or 2. And then once you're in that range that you're probably fine, no matter what the timing is. And there's evidence for that. You know, I'm not just making that up, but, you know, once you start getting into a, an energy balance or energy deficit situation, then probably every trick that you can think of might be important to try. So then sort of spreading out the meals, for example, might be worth doing because you're you're really trying to you know get as much out of a situation as you can a challenging situation and then of course once you get up into the higher the competitive and elite athlete level that then you've got to start balancing that between training demands and when the training is etc and that's that's where it really becomes a challenge to try to get everything in the first goal though should be the amount of protein so in an energy deficit, if you want to maintain or gain lean mass, then you want to get up in that sort of 2 to 2.4 range. That should be the first goal. Now, that goal is easier if you spread out the meals. Spreading out the meals might have a metabolic advantage. There are some arguments for that. Now, in these studies, in these weight loss studies, that hasn't been tested directly. And I doubt that you would see a big difference if you did do that, just because of all the other variables that go on in these studies. But yeah, I would say probably not make it a life or death kind of thought in your head, but it wouldn't hurt to spread out the meals and 
you certainly to have some protein after you've trained is probably a good thing. Although it's not going to kill you if it happens an hour later or two hours later. But then again, you know, if you're trying to get that much protein and you're probably going to want to do it right afterwards because that's otherwise you run out of time. Yeah. And that for me is the, is the key, particularly with the sort of athletes that I work with, there are many things that can get in the way of a practical opportunity to have a feeding that includes adequate protein because of things like travel and so on and so forth. So I think, yeah, like you say, I, I think if there's a an opportunity to get it in so that you can ensure that you're hitting the total requirement per day, then uh, that's possibly a, a bigger argument for the timing thing. So beyond the timing, the type of protein is something that we've discussed in previous podcasts. But as it relates to this specific issue of protein and, and weight loss, how important is the actual quality of the protein? And what do we even mean by quality anyway, Kev? Oh, uh, well, that's a whole podcast in itself, really. We're yeah. talking typically people are talking about the the quality being you know, it depends on whether you talk, if you go with the official sort of nutrition dietetics quality, where you talk about biological value, et cetera, or what we tend to talk about in the exercise nutrition field, which is the essential amino acid content. You know, the argument is that animal proteins typically have greater quality and that you can get a better response of muscle protein census or even whole body protein census with animal proteins than equivalent amount of plant proteins. And that might become important. You could argue that that could become important in a weight loss situation because then, you know, you're really trying to get the most out of everything. But again, probably at those higher levels of protein, once you're getting up in there, then it probably doesn't matter whether it's animal or plant. And that, as you said earlier, that food is the important thing. And so you want to make sure that that athlete gets the food that they will eat and can enjoy as much as they can if they're on a 40% energy deficit, which is high and no fun, then you don't want them to be eating stuff that they don't like any more than they have to for any longer than they have to anyway. Now, there is some evidence, and Stu, again, Stu Phillips did this study, uh, Andrea Joss did this, gosh, a while ago now, 10 years at least, and it was in overweight women, but suggested that dairy products actually were better than non-dairy in a higher protein intake situation. And the argument there was sort of that the quality of the protein type thing. Now, that's been disputed by subsequent, not necessarily solid studies, but people making arguments, especially the, the vegan zealots don't like that study. But uh, I think it needs to be investigated more. So there are some hints that possibly animal and in particular dairy might be advantageous. I'm not convinced that that's absolutely necessary. And so, you know, if you've got an athlete who is a vegan or vegetarian or plant-based, if you want to call it that. I don't think there's any reason to force dairy on to it just because you've got one or two studies which suggest that that might be advantageous. So again, I think the quality of the protein is probably important at the high end of the, the spectrum, but the most important thing is to get the higher amount of protein in first and then think about what proteins you can use to get to that level. And the risk of ruining the environment and possibly dairy might, there at least are some data suggesting that dairy might be a factor, but I'm not convinced that that's the only way to go. It would, I certainly wouldn't do that if I were working with athletes. I wouldn't make them have dairy if they didn't want it. Yeah. And, you know, look, if we come back to that phrase, food first, you know, there's a reason for that. And that's because food or protein rich foods is more than just protein. There's other stuff there. There's stuff, vitamins, minerals, plant-based compounds that we don't even, we haven't even identified yet that have some sort of, you know, health giving, health supporting mechanism within the body. You know, we, we I did a podcast uh, it's a while ago now with Nick Bird, and we talked about the food matrix, particularly uh, with protein and you know, you start looking at those studies that differentiates things like uh, egg protein, you know, dairy and these isolates, even within, you know, we talk about dairy sources of protein, you know, there is a difference between whey and casein. And there's various versions of those as well that exist. But when you compare that to say milk, for example, there is quite a big difference in terms of the spectrum of nutrients that are there. And I think that's 
that's why we do need to think about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And of course, the needs and preferences of our athlete to include, you know, what's just practical, what they can get their hands on. And is it really worth the money they're going to spend on it? Because face it, some of these protein supplements are pretty expensive relative to a food which may not cost as much. In fact, while we're on that, you know, what are your thoughts about that with regards to supplemental sources of protein versus foods? Because there are going to be a reason or a rationale for consuming, say, a, a whey or a casein protein supplement as opposed to some chicken or fish or soy or tofu or, or, or whatever. What, what are your sort of thoughts on that in this context of weight loss? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably the same as any other time, which is, I think it's perfectly fine for an athlete or an exerciser to go their whole life and never have a liquid protein supplement, an isolated way or a isolated egg protein or whatever. I don't think anybody ever really needs to do that from a nutritional standpoint, but from a convenience standpoint or how to work it into your schedule standpoint, then I think that there are clear reasons to do that, that, you know, if someone is really busy and they're doing a, you know, training session and then they've got to go do something else whether it's you know if they're a university athlete they're going to a lecture or if they're a you know maybe they got a press conference if they're an elite athlete or something well then to have a protein shake or a protein supplement is a way to get the protein in near the exercise and to get enough protein in during the day then i think that that's fine so i, I don't think from a pure nutrition standpoint that it's necessary but it it can be very helpful and a very important, as you like to say, tool in the toolbox. And so, yeah, there's no, there's, I don't think there's any reason to do that. And the downside to the supplements would be, as you suggested, is that, you know, Nick's done a lot of good writing on it and Stefan Fenfliet's done a lot of this and, you know, Jorn Trommelin wrote a nice paper on meals. And of course our paper in 2006 was one of the first ones where we came up with the notion that, there's something going on in a whole milk that was, you know, enhancing the ability of the muscle to utilize the protein that wasn't in skim milk. So we're going, well, there's some combination here that we're missing or that people aren't thinking about. So it does seem like there's something to this notion of the food matrix that there's an interaction with the nutrients that helps you utilize that protein. And, and Nick's egg study shows that as well. What that is, of course, I'm sure Nick said on the podcast, well, I remember him saying it, that we don't know exactly what it is right now. There is some evidence that it could be something to do with the fat, but nobody knows for sure. And it hasn't been systematically investigated. So there is an argument for food from a nutritional standpoint. But I think in the grand scheme of things, that a supplement is not a bad thing. It just shouldn't be the end all to be all, which, of course, a lot of people do. You see that all the time with people relying too much on supplements when probably food's better from all sorts of reasons, not just protein reasons. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, the, the title is in itself the description, isn't it? It's a supplement, not an instead of. It's there to support. Well, and that's, it often yeah. becomes a substitute, not a supplement, right? And that's where I think it's, um, it can be an issue. So dare I go into this next bit? So we talked about protein, but of course protein is is in itself constructed from its own basic building blocks and that would be amino acids and there's various amino acids and branch chain amino acids which some people will argue is a reason to supplement you know you're worried about additional calories when actually you don't need to eat all that protein when you could just take these supplements what are your thoughts on amino acid supplements and branch chain amino acid supplements and well, i say this with tongue in cheek but yeah, I mean, you know, we've gone through the brand. We did the whole podcast on branch chain amino acids, and there's no solid evidence that I can see where isolated branch chain amino acids would be a valuable addition to anyone's repertoire, a tool in their toolbox. Throw it out, throw that tool out. We just published a paper with Brad Schoenfeld. Daniel Plotkin was the first author where he did a really nice job getting through the literature, and we wrote this paper and it's just, there's just no solid evidence. And we're not the first or the probably won't be the last to suggest this. Now, essential amino acids, that might be a different story. And a lot of the more recent studies on energy deficits 
had been done in sort of military type populations. And again, Stefan Pasiakos and his crew at Usarium have been instrumental in that. And they've been working a lot with Arnie Ferrando and Bob Wolf in Arkansas. Although Bob is literally physically in New Zealand. He got stuck down there with the pandemic. Now he doesn't want to leave. And he's the opposite of a hobbit, you know. So, but anyway, they've been doing work together and some really nice studies with, because as it's probably not hard for people to imagine, that is a, an athletic population, These, especially these higher end military units that, that do sustained operations, these special forces people. And they've been doing these studies. Now they're really difficult studies to do because there's only so much you can control in these populations. And that's one of the problems with the, the body of literature that they've developed, which is they've got all these various situations which have each of them have several different variables that are being manipulated. And so it's hard to, to get a sort of general consensus on what's going on. But they've done some of this stuff with the essential amino acids. And the idea there is, is that metabolically you can get, if you have an essential amino acid supplement or source that you don't need the, the non-essential amino acids to get the same metabolic response. So you can carry less mass around and still get the same food, which might be important for a lot of these missions. And I was on a panel back in just before I left the States in the mid 2000s on a panel for the Institute of Nutrition in the U.S. The, and we were doing a trying to look into military rations for these special forces guys because they go out on these missions that last, say, three, four, five days up to a week or 10 days even. And they can only eat what they carry. So they don't carry, they want to carry that much food. So they need to get the best bang for their buck, so to speak. And our idea was that we proposed was to carry just essential amino acids rather than protein because you can get the same metabolic response. Now they go into this expending anywhere from 4,000 up to seven, 8,000 calories per day and only eating, say, 1,500 to 2,000. So they're in this big calorie deficit with a lot of stress because, you know, they don't sleep much because they're moving around a lot. And it's not a great deal of high intensity exercise, but it's constant movement and a lot of hiding from people they are shooting at them. So you can imagine that there's a stress component as well. And they, still, the need, they still need to be able to move fast when it's necessary, of course. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the guys that we were talking to about this, you know, he said, you know, one of the panel members quizzed him and said, so why do you, because what they would do is they cherry pick their MREs and they only put a certain amount of them into the pack and they were going, why do you cherry pick it? It was, and you know, he's a good old long-term veteran soldier. He said, ma'am, it's because I ain't going to die from starvation in five days, but I might die of lead poisoning. And of course, he meant getting shot with, by lead poisoning. So they would sacrifice the extra food to put extra bullets in. So the point is, is there is an argument for essential amino acids in, that, in a situation like that where you're trying to really limit, in this case, mass is how much was being carried, not so much as mass, losing mass or whatever. But the idea was to try to minimize the, the muscle loss and the metabolic perturbations by providing the essential amino acids with but you didn't need all the protein. So in some very specialized situations, you might need that. I would argue that for most exercisers and athletes that that's not going to be important. And it still hasn't been exactly, although they did come up with a couple of brand new studies in the last year or two, it's still not completely established that that is going to be what you absolutely want to do. But for sure, it's going to be in a specialized military situation. And those are the situations in which this concept of after 40%, if you get greater than 40% energy deficit, that you no longer can get this proper anabolic response from protein or whatever. And the studies that have been done are in the context of that, those high-end military situations. And some of the studies were actually done in like training, some of these army ranger training and, and that kind of thing. Or I think one of them was a study in Marines training in the Arctic and so they come with all these extra stress variables that, you know, wouldn't necessarily apply to even an elite athlete, you know, in a training camp. They're not getting shot at and they're not out in the Arctic carrying a big pack around. So hmm. I think that there are some of these concepts. And then let me just finish on this or carry on with this energy deficit thing, because 
there's one study, a nice study done by Stefan Pasiakos and them, and it was done almost 10 years ago now. And they published three papers out of it. But And this is the sort of basis of where in David Church wrote a nice review article recently on it, on military. And they argue that this, you can't, once you get past 40%, you no longer get, can get an anabolic response. Now, the problem with that, I think is, I wouldn't doubt if that's true, but I don't think it's been established. And the problem is in the study that they did, they did RDA, two times the RDA or 1.6 grams per kilo, or three times the RDA, which is 2.4 grams per kilo. And that's up in the range where we did our study with Sam and Stu did with Longland, and where we did see an anabolic response and they didn't. Now ours was about 40%. Now in this study, what they did was they substituted, as I was talking about earlier, they gave protein and took out carbohydrate to get up to that three times the RDA to get to 2.4. So the carbohydrate intake dropped a great deal. And so what happens is that protein oxidation goes up. And so they saw protein oxidation go way up without lean mass being preserved in that three times the RDA. It was, it was about the same as the 1.6. The 2.4 and the 1.6 were about the same. And so their argument was, oh, well, you're getting there. It's no longer any good. You can't do this higher weight. And I would argue that maybe that's not true, that you, if you would have just maintained that carb intake in that situation, that you might have been able to reduce that protein oxidation. And we do know that there is a, a relationship there that, and Dan Moore showed this recently, that if you cut the carbohydrate during a heavy activity situation, a training situation, that protein oxidation is going to be increased. So I think, again, that's another argument that I alluded to earlier of why carbohydrates, if you're going to be training, are important. And that will not only support the training per se, which will help you maintain muscle because you get the training stimulus, but also reduce the protein oxidation. And so that protein that you're eating, not as much of it will be oxidized and therefore it's available for turning into muscle. That would be the theory. Now, again, these things need to be systematically investigated. And that's why I think that I sort of push back a bit against this notion of at the higher energy deficits that we can't get, we can't maintain muscle. I'm not sure that that's been established yet. And I spoke to David Church about it and he did agree that, that yeah, we need to look into this more. Brilliant, Kev. Listen, I think we better draw this one to some sort of a, a conclusion because like you say, it, you've only scratched the surface of this, which means that we could actually use that entire conversation so far as just the intro to another five-hour podcast, <laughs> which I don't think we can do. So let's just, and by let's, I mean you, can you please summarize then this concept of, you know, the sort of the role and relevance of, of protein and quality weight loss. What are the main sort of key points then you want you want to summarize for us, Kev? Okay, but let me just, before I say that, just mm. interject one more final thing, which is Please. about females. Most of the studies, as usual, are done in males. And we did a study recently, and it was published last year. Alice Pearson was the first author, and Lee Alexander did a lot of the work on the study. And we did train females. We tried to replicate Sam Mettler's study, but in female athletes. And the results were not exactly the same. And so I don't want to get into the details, but it, it suggests that there could be a difference in A, the metabolism, which I kind of think is probably not necessarily true, but B, the way that practitioners should be handling male and female athletes with weight loss. And the gist of it is that probably you don't want to think about it in terms of a percentage of calories when you're advising how much protein, especially to female athletes. So I'd recommend people read Alice's paper. Alice Pearson is published in European Journal of Applied Physiology last year. But yeah, as far as points to go for protein, I would say that if maintenance of muscle mass is the main goal, that you want to keep your protein intake high somewhere in the 2 to 2.4 grams per kilo range. And again, back to the females, that becomes difficult when you're you're dropping. And that's what happened in our study was their total energy intake to begin with was, you know, not that great, not that high. I mean, so then when we dropped it by 40%, that you got really low calorie intakes and it becomes difficult to get that much protein in. So that becomes a challenge for the, the practitioners who are the listeners now is to try to do that. So 
you got to figure out how to get that much protein in and still get enough carbohydrate because I think it's important if you're training. And if you want to get the stimulus to maintain the muscle, then you need enough carbohydrate. Now, what that is, I can't give you a magic number because I, I think it varies depending on this training and the athlete. I think the first choice should be to substitute. If you're going to drop calories, drop fat first down to the point where fat becomes a problem. And then that depends on how long you want to keep this weight loss situation going. But drop the fat before the carbohydrate. Obviously, like I said, you know, as much as I enjoy a beer, I think dropping the alcohol would probably be the first choice in any of these situations. Now, again, with the caveat of not every athlete wants to keep muscle mass when they lose total mass. And so that should be a factor as well in whether or not you want to keep that protein intake high. And then, you know, as you say, we've got a lot more to learn. And I think we need to do, especially in athletes and especially in female athletes, more studies to try to, and then, you know, the, in females, the combination with the, the menstrual cycle and what that might entail as far as this goes is, is really open, I think. Brilliant. Thank you, Kev. There was a lot there, which is why it's so great that we record these things and folks can listen to it uh, again and again as, as much as they, as they wish. And uh, we will have a transcript from this podcast, which, yeah, I know you love it. When we do podcasts, I get you to do your own podcast transcript for, for your sessions. But uh, they are useful, so we will have that. And all the other episodes that we've uh, briefly touched on, uh, some of the other experts that I've done podcasts with or we've jointly spoken to, I'll link to those on the podcast notes as well as uh, some of the relevant papers and reviews on the topic, which you can get access to our uh, podcast uh, section of our website at www.theiopn.com, where we also have our advanced, our postgraduate level practice-focused Diploma in Performance Nutrition, where a lot of our graduates can now be found in many professional and elite sports teams around the world, which is something we're very proud about. And Kev, our upcoming uh, some research outputs soon enough, hopefully, will also be accessible via our, our website and all the other bits and bobs we do. And of course, it's not just me and Kev at the IOPM. We have an awesome team of tutors, practitioners, and researchers who contribute to our many activities, but in particular, the delivery of our online diploma. So anyway, check all of that out at www.theiopn.com. Thank you once again, Kev. It's been a pleasure. We look forward to bringing another podcast back to you. It'll be a little bit of a break. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, I'm going to be off at the UEFA Euro uh, Football Soccer Championship for our international audience. So for the next six weeks or so, I'm going to be working with football players, but we will bring a whole series of new podcasts back when I when I get back. So take care, everyone. And uh, once again, Kev, thanks for your time today. It's been great. My as pleasure. Always. Bye, everybody. Take care.